you know, people are willing to spend forty, fifty thousand dollars to go work for free for many years in film school, but then they're presented with like an incredible opportunity and they get caught on like, oh, I should really charge for this, where it's like, just go do the work. Just mm. go shoot the thing. You know, and eventually people start to exchange with you back because you're delivering so much. Like and if they don't, fine, then you adjust the people that are around you over time and you find your people. But that's no reason not to go shoot amazing things and build up a portfolio over time. Welcome back to another episode of the Rough Cut Club. I am your host, Joey Nakotra, here with another episode that I am super excited about today with my incredible co-host, Mr. Shane Wright-Zammer. Shane, how are you doing today, my friend? Great, man. I'm excited to uh, dive into this episode. I know yeah, there's dude. so much to cover. Uh, the things that I've seen that this guy does is awesome. But first, tell me about this QR code, oh, bro. Like, bro, get, get a this close, is, can we get a close up? This is a little uh, uh, a plug for a, <laughs> a small production company out of Dallas, Texas for uh, Cinema Story Productions repping uh, nice. here in the studio today, man. Nice. Everybody scan that. See yep, where that takes scan you. Scan that QR code, baby. <laughs> um, well, anyway, man, uh, today's guest, he is a director of photography, someone who knows all the tricks of the trade. He has worked with some of the biggest celebrities in the game. He is also currently doing one of, if not the biggest indie feature doc ever made, something like that. Crazy tagline. Uh, <laughs> so he is definitely uh, a force to be reckoned with. Super excited to welcome to the show our newest VIP Rough Cut Club member, Mr. Kevin Garrison. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, guys. And, uh, Heck of an intro. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I got to start collecting uh, those uh, when people are like, dude, that was a great intro. We, man. Need, we need some music to I go know. behind it, too. We're going yeah. gonna, to gonna start rolling out like a whole song for you, bro. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I love it. Well, thanks well, for thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, man. We're excited to chop it up with you as a DP. I always like picking the brains of other uh, people that do what I do, but do it better and differently. And so it's always great to learn from those who are ahead of me. So thanks for stopping by today, man. Before we uh, get into it, man, give me a little bit on how you got into the game and what you're doing in the industry right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, in terms of backstory for me, it's, it's pretty strange. I, uh, Grew up in Los Angeles. Um, wasn't I wouldn't say I was particularly like artistically inclined in the early formation years of my life. I always kind of thought I would get into business and all that. Um, moved to Florida and uh, was working at my dad's company in my teenage years, kind of doing like networking sales and stuff. Did well at that. It was like, you know, selling internet to hotels and random stuff like that. And that was sort of like where my attention was at. And, uh, but I enjoyed playing music and I, I had met this photographer that was like a music photographer and I wanted to learn about photography. And, uh, he shot, was shooting on like a Nikon DSLR. I was like, oh, that's really cool. It's like a fancy camera and these photos look amazing. And, you know, he's like using these strobes to light stuff. So I like, uh, you know, forcibly convinced him into teaching me how to use a camera for like a few weeks. And I was like, oh, I'll come like, you know, intern for you and I can like hold the lighting stand and stuff. And um, just started kind of learning what photography was about. And then I went around Florida, like, you know, breaking into music venues and like, you know, taking photos of like artists that I knew of and 
you know, saying like, yeah, yeah, I'm here to like photograph so and such at like the House of Blues. And they're like, oh, you're with him? I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and just like sneak into these places. And then like the artists would see me in, in the pit, you know, taking photos and like, oh, he must be with the venue. And then I meet them afterwards. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm totally with the venue. Like, <laughs> you know, and uh, got some of like my first friends and kind of clients in the business that way. And I like eventually had to break it to them. And I was like, I, I completely lied to you. And like, none of that was true. <laughs> but like, are, are, you got some great photos out of it. And, um, so that was sort of the very beginnings of things. Um, then I, you know, found the video dial on a DSLR and, um, ended up doing a shoot, uh, that that same photographer that had taught me how to shoot basically sent me an email. I was like, Hey, look, there's this like charity that wanted me to go out for like a month and a half. There's no possible way that I can do that. There's no pay, like, you know, but it's like good experience. And I was like, you travel all around the world with this like nonprofit. There's teaching human rights and all these like third world countries. And I was like, yeah, I'll totally do that. I, I, I don't need money right now. I'm just going to like make it work and I want to travel around. So I said, yes. And they're like, you can do video, right? I was like, totally, absolutely fine. I don't even think there was a video mode on that camera that I had. So I had to like <laughs> figure out how to like hack into it. And I think it was an icon. You had to like install the flat profile still into like a hacked mm. version of the camera mm -hmm. and, uh, did the whole video thing and figured all that out. So, uh, just sort of wung it and was winging it and went in and, uh, spent 47 days in nine different countries around the world, figuring out how to shoot video. And, uh, the rest is history. Dude, that, that is an incredible, like yeah. first project to cut your teeth on, bro. Like yeah. I can't imagine like the pressure, uh, like getting right into the game being like, I got to figure out, you know, frame rates and like shutter speed and all that stuff. Just like with no experience. That's wild, man. And in the early days yeah. too, with it, like you said, like the video dial, like there's a brand new thing on the DSLRs back then. Did y'all ever uh, hack man. into a cannon and like add magic lantern oh, to, yeah. uh, to your cannons back in yeah. the day? Yeah. I had the, yeah, that was an upgrade. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like a whole new camera right there, bro. Mm. Dude, that's, yeah. that's awesome, man. So fast forward to today. Uh, you know, that was, that was your first project. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what you're doing in the industry today, man. Yeah. So now, interestingly enough, that same project, when we finished shooting that, it was like 47 days abroad. We came back to LA and the the founder of that nonprofit, Youth for Human Rights, she had a son that was a filmmaker and he was there at that rap party um, that we'd had, which was like just celebrating making it back alive, I think. Um, and he saw some of the photos and a little bit of the video. And after that, he, he was like, Hey, let's go get some like Thai food down in Burbank or something. And, uh, here in California, I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, sure. We go there. And he's like, dude, that was like some really cool stuff that you did. Like my mom had great things to say about you. And like, there's not a lot of people who can like do that. Like, you know, I, I was in that same position, like 10 years ago when she'd first started that. And like, I know how crazy it is. And, um, so that same person, is the director of the projects that I'm doing now. So those many, many, many years ago, met him because of that. And now he's since directed Nomad. He's the creative director of all the genius projects that we've been shooting recently. And I've filmed in 63 countries all around the world and all seven continents with that same person. Wow. So, and his name's Teron Lexton. He's an incredible director, uh, producer, Creative director, writer, 
really, really talented guy. So I've, I've been sort of keeping up with that. And uh, most recently, the biggest project that we've been doing is called Nomad, which is uh, a film that we shot on the Alexa Mini LF all over the world. The film itself is shot in 31 countries and all seven continents, which is the most countries and most continents of any narrative film ever in mm. history. And it's a full length feature. Um, you know, so it's, it's not really a documentary. It's just, uh, has a lot of those documentary like aspects in terms of how the film was made, but it is a narrative story. It's a scripted narrative. And we shot the entire film without any cinema lights. There's no CGI and there's no sets. It's all real places. So it was a pretty wild experience. And that's been the last four years of my life or so. Okay. So much to unpack right there, bro. Uh, even before we jump into Nomad, I love the fact that the very, like one of the very first projects that you ever did, you're still grinding it out with the person that got you into the game. Uh, very, very similar story with me and Shane here. He was the first, I don't want to say the first client, uh, that I ever had, but I think within three months of me graduating film school, maybe we did our first, our first project together. And I think it was like, maybe like two or three months out of film school. And six years later, we've like made thousands of videos together and are still doing like content together and it's such a cool thing to like find that director dp relationship combo that you can ride out into the sunset and literally chase sunsets for the next six years because the sun is going down and you want to get the golden hour shots together but uh he yeah, says dude. he's saying i'm getting old yeah i think that's what he's saying yeah <laughs> I've, got two, I've got two kids now and he's like the sunset's going my down, time is hour. limited bro we got all the time in the world i, I think what's important for our listeners too man is uh Dude, he did that first project, uh, totally pro bono, right? Like travel experience, exposure, all that stuff. And and I had a similar yeah. story. I did that, and I went to India and did like a, a documentary type thing. And same thing, it just opens up so many doors. I got connected with producers and directors and all of that stuff. And it's like a lot of people, you know, whether they're graduating from film school or they're like, I'm pursuing this freelance thing, and they're so married on to, you know, well, I got to, I got to work at a certain price or a certain level and they're waiting for that. I mean, that's good. You do need to, you do need to make money and pay your bills, but go out and take some chances. Cause you're, you're, yeah. you're going to be passionate about what you do. I mean, make sure you're going to be passionate about the project, right? Something like that sounded epic, Yeah. but then you get connected, dude. I mean, you just, now you're blowing up from that, that thing that yeah. you've done has, you know, um, catapulted you into what you're doing now so man that's congrats that's awesome yeah i got a random question uh because i have not yeah. traveled as much as you have i've, I've done i don't think anybody has no it doesn't <laughs> sound like india i've done india like uh some places in uh central america you know and we were you know filming in 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 um you know developing countries and and uh what's the one thing that you miss like when you're abroad and you're in these developing countries like when you come back to the united states you're like dude i'm so excited or happy that we have this what is it for you uh it depends on like how far out in to like some crazy places you go but I, hot water is mm. like like a hot shower mm. after you've been like in a really remote place in africa for like a few weeks like you start to remember Honestly, even a cold shower, like just running yeah. water is yeah. <laughs> an amazing feeling after a while. And you don't realize like how much you depend on that. But I think, you know, if 
in terms of like what's just like the staple thing that I love the most about coming back, it's kind of I feel like people don't appreciate necessarily how well oiled our system is mm. in the States and in Europe. Like we have it really, really good. Like I always find myself appreciating home so much when I see how difficult it can be to live in other places. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of beauty that comes with that. I'm sure you experience that in India. Like there's this beautiful cultural element. There's this beautiful spirituality that exists. And even though people have nothing, they seem very, very happy. But at the same time, you know, you come back to the United States after a month in India and it's like, wow, it's like kind of hard to complain about like the pothole in the street. Right. <laughs> Cause right. it's like, I'm pretty happy to have the street in the first place. Like yeah. this is a, this is a, a marvel of engineering that we've figured out. Um, so it definitely makes me more appreciative of home. Yeah. Oh man. It's so well said. So definitely true. I'm right there with you. The systems is, is really interesting. It's eye opening Cause like even in India, it was like the, there's not really a, uh, at least where the areas I was, the, the trash is just thrown out out of the cars on the streets and they burn it in the streets. And so yeah. when I got back, I'm like, man, I'll never complain about like when the trash guy doesn't pick up yeah. your can or something. I'm like, at least we have like a system <laughs> and a service and yeah, we pay for it and all that. But it's just like, we've got a system in yeah. place and we're not burning trash in the street. And, and same thing, like India is absolutely beautiful. I love, I went three, I went back for three years working on a documentary and some of my fondest memories there and in, in Central America as well in Honduras, San Pedro Sul, the murder capital of the world. Beautiful, just yeah. so, so great, great people, you know, but it's, it's kind of perspective. It's eye opening. And so yeah. I was like, dude, I got to know for a guy who's been to every continent, it's like what, it, but it's systems. It is. It's, it's, uh, yeah. it's true on every level, man. Even, well, that's great. even like Mexico, dude, like you can't drink the water there. And so like, I brush my teeth like out of a bottle of water when I go to Mexico and yeah. it's like the little things yeah. that you don't think about. Um, and again, I've never gone to, you know, different continent. Well, yeah, not, I don't even think I've been to another continent yet. So it's on my bucket list. But uh, yeah, dude, that's really, really cool. I want to jump into uh, to Nomad because I know that that's... You said you've yeah. been working on it for, what, f- four? Did you say four years now? If you count the early scouts, it's been about six years. Wow. Um, when we first started going out to like visit some of the tribes in Africa and sort of see where we might film. Um, but I would say from like principal... Uh, easy for me to say principal photography until now has been about four years uh in total and 31 countries so seven continents so can you talk to me a little bit about the story and just like the format because i feel like writing it into that many different locations like there's intentionality behind doing that of course and so like what is the heart of a story like that that is so you know, spread out in so many different locations, um, you know, from, from an insider's perspective. Yeah. I mean, without spoiling the story for everybody, it is essentially a story of a young man that wakes up in a different place on earth every day. Mm. And, uh, you know, the way that that happens and kind of the reasoning and some of the locations, I won't spoil any of that, but the, the unique thing about that is that it's all done without CGI. It's all done with real lighting and in real places with real people. And so from the very beginning, when Teron was working on the project, because he's both the writer and the director, and he's had this very similar experience of traveling all around the world. Like Teron is right there up with me. I think he's been in 
58 countries or 59 countries. I've got him beat by like four, um, which is a very sore spot for him at the moment. We, we <laughs> trade back and forth. Um, and I apologize if there's any noise. I'm in a uh, hotel lobby as it sometimes is. No worries. But um, basically, the, the entire purpose of this, in my opinion, was to showcase a really real phenomenon that he was probably experiencing traveling so much is that you wake up in a different place and you're like, wow, this is like a completely different culture. And then mm. you're there shooting a project for a little time. And then, you know, just as you're kind of starting to become familiar with a place or start to establish a feeling or a sense of home, you're gone to the next one. And it was something that was very true for me as well as I began traveling and shooting a lot is you'd be in a place and you're like, oh, this is amazing. And then the next day you're on a plane, you're going to the next place. And it's this incredible experience in that you get a very diverse view of the world, but there's also this feeling of like, where is home when that's mm. happening? And it's offset by this incredible feeling of like, where would you go next? Mm. And so there's this push and pull that happens where you have the excitement of the next place, but there's always the previous place is kind of the last home that you're in and there you, you miss it a little bit, you know, mm. you're, you were just starting to root something there and then you're gone and on to the next. So I think that really wove its way into this story. And from a very early stage, I know that Teron, he didn't want to use any lights though. We've used a lot of lighting packages on past films and things like that. We just knew that some of the locations we were traveling to, it just wouldn't be possible. And we decided to make it a limitation of the film that if we were going to do everything real and we were going to do it without CGI and that there was going to be no green screen, it was going to be real people then why are we going to drag along a huge lighting package? It should feel real throughout the entire thing. And, and that was a big aspect of the film. It should look amazing. And we, we certainly would light with the sun and we would make a lot of our lighting decisions around locations and how we blocked the scenes and the time of day. And, you know, so there's a lot of like waking up at before dawn and going to bed after sunset and a lot of like doing your planning in the middle of the day when the lighting's not great. And, you know, those were things that we decided that we had to do early on, but it was all in the search of like, how do we make this feel as real as possible and really showcase the beauty of the planet and the journey that these characters are taking through that uh, and have it be as realistic as possible. This is like number one on my list. Yeah. Want to see films now. When When is this uh, going to come out? Right now, uh, it's... It's in talks on, you know, kind of the, the tail end of things. The film is done. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's really going into sort of the after distribution and sales cycle and all of that. So um, it's really uh, soon. I don't have an exact moment, an exact time, but I'm hoping by the beginning of next year. Um, that's the idea. That's awesome, man. Congrats on that. I'm curious how big, uh, you know, you're doing this very – um, compact, you know, no lights. So I'm guessing no G and E team, nothing like that. So what does the crew size look like? Is there the cast size? I mean, I imagine you're sourcing a lot of cast, you know, real people, real, real locations, but, um, are you liberty, liberty to talk about like how big is your crew and then, and then cast? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the core crew was eight people mm. traveling around. So we had director, producer, myself, first AC and, and camera operator, audio, hair and makeup, um, and then I'd go down to, I think, eight. So then the two kind of leads, mm. uh, which are Sanaa Sheikh and Leah Woodall, uh, incredible 
actor and actress. And uh, that was sort of our core crew that would travel around to all these different countries in every single place. And then from there, uh, we would source, of course, local crew when needed. Um, so, you know, if you're in Australia, we, we filmed in Australia for a good chunk, probably for about a month. So we had like our local production team there that was incredible and mm. we'd source people there. Um, or if they were like local talent. So we sort of had talent in each place that might have smaller parts within a story. Sometimes it was just like, we'd be filming in India and we walked past a shop and it was this incredible shop and this guy was like selling us on some stuff and da 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 da, da. And then it was like, can we ask if he wants to be in the scene and like we can cast him in it? And, you know, there was a lot of just finding people who were realistically embodying characters that should be in the film and we were able to work them in as locals. Um, so that was the case with all the tribes and indigenous groups that we worked with. Wow. That'd be so cool. Such a cool concept too. I'm curious. So like, are, did you use like any bounce light or like negative fill or like any sort of things to like help enhance the look of it? Or is it all a hundred percent like straight raw from the camera, like in performance? No, we definitely shaped light. Um, not as much as I think people would imagine. Like a lot of times it was also shaping light, not in a conventional sense of like, we have a 12 by solid over here yeah. and this 12 by ultra bounce, but it would be like this in huge hedge of trees mm. is like really dark and then the sun is coming from over here. So maybe we should shoot our walk and talk scene along this. Right. And you're going to get like natural shaping of light. So there was a lot of like environmental stuff where we'll film closer to the sand dune to get a really nice red bounce light into the eyes of the characters. You know, in Namibia, we'd have these like red dunes and then white sand and it gave this really nice under light and then like a red glow on the side. And so it was just thinking about things in a much different way where you're dealing with like your sources become like that mountain or that sand dune or the sun, you know, pushing this way against a darker background over here. Um, or like if I film really close and I'm wearing a white shirt, I'll get like a nice bounce or hmm. I am willing to operate the camera shirtless and give my shirt to somebody <laughs> else. I can get it exactly where I want. So there's some pretty funny behind the scenes, you know, uh, in that sense, but we, we would always come up with sort of creative solutions to optimize the lighting. And if we could, you know, I think it would usually be like somebody holding a piece of black fabric by hand, yeah. you know, next to a hut. And, um, that was sort of how we'd shape light. But for the most part, it was kind of thinking cleverly about the environment. I have to imagine that like, as a DP, this has like stretched you from like a creative you know, thinking way about how to naturally motivate, you know, authentic feeling light sources and utilize the environment around you to, you know, paint a beautiful picture. And I feel like that's such a good exercise to, you know, challenge, you know, even people to on a smaller degree, um, you know, and utilizing just natural light and, you know, windows and little things that you can do to, you know, practice, uh, the motivation of your sources and just being a scrappy filmmaker at the end of the day to like the, the scrappier (laughs) you are and utilizing like what you have, uh, is ultimately going to make you that much better when you actually have a three ton grip package, you know, on the next project. It speaks to the why of your project as well, right? Like showing, you know, the beauty of the world and all different aspects in the journey. And so really showcasing, all right, this is real, 
this is real light. You know what I mean? This is what we had to work with. This is how it really looked here instead of how we augment and change light in so many different ways in a scene. And you go, yeah. you're like, oh, they filmed that movie here? It doesn't look like that at all. Because, yeah, yeah they, we we augmented it with so much lighting source, yeah. you know? So that's really cool, man. Totally. I think it's an important exercise for everybody. Like, I feel like you get that usually very early on, but not a lot of people ever come back to it. And so it was very, it was actually very weird because the majority of my career is very much like a lighting DP, like that was where most of my time was spent was in the lighting department, like lighting the scenes, figuring out these, you know, how to shoot larger spaces and work around within them. And so I was very um, emotionally attached to my G and E departments <laughs> <laughs> and to go from like being very, very comfortable with that to then deliberately like cutting that resource off, but still finding ways to achieve the looks that we wanted is it's something that I I wish more people would do. I know why they don't because it's terrifying. It's also really difficult, and you run into scenarios where you're like sitting by a fire filming, you know, dual coverage and going like, "Why did we do this?" Because <laughs> all I have to work with, it's like you're just like it's kind of getting dim. It's like, well, let's throw a couple more logs on, you know, mm, yeah. and we'll wait five minutes, and you're like, "Oh, this is brutal," but it's such an important exercise because you start to look at light differently. And, and like you're saying, it's like you approach a scene going, what do I have and what can I build off of? And it's, it's really changed how I light completely because now going back to lighting and coming back to having the, the five ton grip and electric trucks and all these things, I find that I, for one thing, I don't take as many things off the truck as I used to for sure, but I also use them much more deliberately. Mm. And that's really important is if you're going to use something, having a strong reason why is, is crucial. Cause sometimes you can just get a little lost in the sauce. Like, well, if I have it, I want to use it and I want to, you know, but sometimes you kind of undo the natural glamor of what you're shooting or the incredible space, or you get a little lazy about the space that you're going to choose and you don't scout as hard because you're like, ah, I can light anything and you use that as a crutch. So mm. always try to get things as close as humanly possible with no lighting whatsoever and like really put in the effort early on in pre-production. Then when you get there, you get to really have fun because then you're adding like all the sugar and candy on top with the little lighting that you do to enhance the scene and to kind of augment reality. That's so good, man. I have to imagine that there have been more challenges than I can even think to, you know, think of on this project, but what are some of the biggest challenges that you guys feel like you faced and, and, and how you overcame them? I think the biggest challenge was the diversity of locations. So just traveling that much, mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty sure it set the record for the most miles traveled for a feature film. Um, wow. I know that it's the most countries and it's the most contents for a narrative feature. Uh, but it was, you know, several times around the planet circumnavigating mm. it. So um, that, just that, like traveling with gear to that many locations, like I know that's not the most exciting thing that people want to hear, but like that's the crazy part is like, how do you get through customs in Egypt when, you know, there's a guy like smoking Marlboros like into your luggage, you know, mm -hmm. while he's searching mm -hmm. it for like six hours. And mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff is the part where you're like, oh man, I can't wait to get out of here and go film at the place. And yeah, um, I think between that and then just the technical, because we were pushing the technical envelope of what could be done. And we were very fortunate. Like early on, we started with the full size LF, which is a massive camera. Um, you know, 
and the Mini LF did not yet exist and they hadn't released it, but we had been speaking early on with Aerie about the film and they were super supportive and they actually got us one of the prototype Mini LFs, which we got when we were in Africa in Botswana. Mm. Um, so we had a, a prototype, I think it was Us, Dune, and 1917, and maybe one other film, but we had like the first couple wow. prototypes and we got one of them shipped out to Africa when it was still kind of a secret. And uh, that was like the biggest relief in the world because just running around in Africa with a camera that like didn't break your spine every day was incredible. And it was still, you know, IMAX quality and could shoot an IMAX picture. Um, and so that was really, really, really cool. That was so, one of the things that I was like. <sighs> yeah, I mean, obviously the, the LF is gorgeous, um, but I'm curious, like, you know, was large format like something that you were like, I have to bring this to, you know, a film of this caliber? Um, like what was the why in choosing that camera specifically? The main thing about large format, I, I actually was not into large format initially. Like I was not that interested in it as a, a medium because I was so attached to master primes as lenses. Like I was so in love with the Aerie Master Primes, uh, Aerie Zeiss, and it was just like, I don't think I would give up Super 35 for anything because I just love these lenses so much, um, even though a lot of them do cover that, that format. It wasn't until the Signature Primes were releasing and they had the full-size Aerie LF that I was like, okay, I'm just going to try it out. And that was the Kylie and Kendall shoot that I did. It was the first time I used yeah. large format. And we'll I saw <laughs> the effect that it... Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and I, I fell in love with it. The signature primes were reminded me a lot of the master primes. They're, they are, they do have a different character, but they were very, very close. It was the closest thing I've ever found to the master primes. And the image that it got just felt huge. Like I remember seeing that and it, probably because that shoot was like on the side of a building in Times Square and it, I could see it that big that I like had that experience and I got it. And I was like, oh, this is like, meant for the big screen hmm. and as we were doing our initial r&d on nomad i was talking to Teron about large format as an option i was like look it's going to be painful because there's this huge camera and like we're traveling and like, it's not ideal but we're shooting these huge epic vistas and like the story is so big it would be almost unthinkable to me to not do it justice with a camera format that actually can display that and there were rumors about this smaller version of the LF that might be coming out at the time. And I kind of like stalked down the airy booth at Cinegear one day and like found an engineer and I guess he like happened to follow me on Instagram and who I was and it was working on the camera and then introduced me to somebody else at Airy and we started talking about it and I like showed them the pitch deck and they're like, well, let's see what we can do. And they were incredibly supportive the entire time. Still are like all of the guys at Airy are just, such incredible human beings that they care so much about those systems. So they, they really helped kind of carry us through that entire process and, and ensured that everything was up to spec and that anything that we needed was like accounted for. It was really, really cool um, to have like a direct line in with the engineering teams talking about like how the camera was working in all these crazy locations. It was also like a chance for them to put it to the test. And it's like, oh, cool, you'll be in Antarctica one day and then you'll be in the desert the other day and, like, let us know how the temperature differential is and, like, 
So we got to kind of share all the different technical stuff back and forth with their teams. So it was just really, really cool on that front. Um, I think I totally lost track of your question, actually. Got no, man, that, that, that was that was great, man. I know, um, you know, you obviously get like a ton more like depth of field play with, with the large format. Yes. And so I'm curious, like, if you went like shallower in these gorgeous places or because you had the large format capabilities or if you kind of, you know, wanted to show off, you know, the beautiful landscapes. Um, like I imagine there has to be that war within you during, during yeah. a film like this. It was a battle constantly. Yeah. Um, you know, part of it is you want to stop down to like show everything. And so generally what I would do in those scenarios is, I would shoot on a wider lens yeah. and still keep a relatively shallow depth of field, but just have more, you know, focus playing. Like everything was just a little more hyperfocal and allow the camera to move around within those spaces. Like fortunately my first AC is also like a absolute unbelievable monster of a Mobi operator too. And so we would just like switch out and like, I'm pulling your operating, like let's go. And we do these crazy Moby shots that looked like Steadicam. It's probably the only guy I know who could operate a Moby like a Steadicam. Um, so that helped a lot to kind of show more in focus and, and show more of these locations. And then a lot of stuff, we also had a uh, uh, 50 to 1,000 mil Canon um, with a 1.5 extender. So we'd actually do quite a bit of long shots as well. So we'd be like, hiking out like half a mile away from the talent with like radio comms. And then we'd be filming super, super long lens to compress wow. landscapes and stuff like that. So, um, I got away with a lot of shallow focus and like the coverage with, uh, when we actually had actors and stuff, which was great. Cause it would really like isolate in on them and what would otherwise be, I think almost a distractingly beautiful landscape for like more intimate yeah. scenes. Uh, and then we could break out into these huge epic wides and, so a lot of the film is either very tight or very wide and, you know, showcasing the environment or it's really in their world within it, which I think was a really cool choice that was actually Teron's doing very much. So it's like, I either want to be like in the space with them experiencing what they're experiencing or we're seeing the entire world that we're in. It's like mm -hmm. really very much one or the other, which is a nice balance throughout the film. That's awesome, man. I love that. Uh, when you guys, you know, you specifically were in pre-production for this what what did the process look like for you to make sure that this film was set up for success? Because I imagine that the prep for this was insanity and, you know, is probably a little bit different than, you know, a traditional film that you've prepared for. Uh, but what did it look like to get ready and, you know, from just understanding the director's vision, the the camera prep, the you know, on a, on a camera that you had never shot on before because it had never been yeah. released. And, you know, talk to me a little bit about how you prepared for a successful execution on this. Yeah. I mean, I'd be lying if I said that we were totally prepared because there's kind of almost no way to prepare for that. So there was like, there was just the mental preparation of understanding that instead of like fighting everything the entire way, you have to just come up with creative solutions. Mm. And so, you know, it was like, okay, great. Like if you don't get the weather that you want, like, let's just try to roll with it. Instead of like fighting against nature, being willing to experience anything was an important part of that. Um, you know, prepare as much as you humanly could, but also being willing to just go that 
is not what I planned on, but we can make this beautiful in a different way. And, you know, if it starts raining and it was supposed to be sunset, like, let's just figure out how to work that in. Cause it's not changing. You know, the weather pattern is like way out there. It's gonna be raining for two days. Like let's adapt. Um, you know, so that was part of it was trying to be as prepared for any scenario as possible, whether that's like having all the rain gear that you need, having redundancy on all of the little things, you know, multiple redundancies, you know, so mm. you're not going to make it through there with one SDI cable, but probably need about 15, uh, <laughs> you know, roll over in, in various different systems. So like, fortunately we were also supported by like wooden camera, Teradex, small HD, Sackler, Anton Bauer. They were all incredibly helpful with the film and sponsored a lot of gear to, to make that happen. Um, so they were incredibly supportive. So we had like a lot of the best gear that we could with multiple redundancies. Um, thanks to them. So that part was important, but it was also figuring out what could work in every scenario. What, you know, what batteries can you fly with? How do you split those up amongst all of the crew so that you mm. can fly with everything? What are the laws in every country? You know, where can you fly a drone? Where do you need to hire a drone team? The logistics of, you know, day one of our shoot was filming the kind of like famous eclipse shot from Nomad. And that was our first day of filming. We had to prep for four or five months for that shot and like talk to astrophysicists about like the path of the sun and how much it'll drift. And then we went out there, you know, a week beforehand and we would chart the path of the camera in relation to the sun every day and like stake out with ropes and like actually follow the sun. And then we could see how many degrees on the ground from the spot we were filming at the sun would shift each day. Cause it was significant, mm. you know? So every day the camera position was like 15 feet further to the right. And we had to tape out the line and then when we had enough data we taped out what our line would be on the day of the eclipse so that we could chase the eclipse as it was happening wow um, dude so stuff like that there's a lot of that like kind of logistics preparation where you know you're you're dealing with the nitty-gritty details of like okay where's the sun going to be and move in this place and you know or how how do you move through an abandoned you know village and Namibia and you know what are the rooms going to be like and you got to traverse over the sand and you know you got to keep all of the cases under 70 pounds for this airline and for this airline you have to do under 50 pounds so there's a lot of those like crazy weird things that I think you never expect to run into and then you know when you're like stuck in a country and you can't leave because the bags are too heavy you're like oh okay <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is dude. a problem <laughs> yeah you you had me when you you were back talking about uh customs you know getting stuck in customs you're just hours i mean i i almost missed a flight when i was traveling because i got stuck with a, a drone and it, you know it was it was this whole thing and finally I had to leave it the batteries behind i got to keep the drone left the batteries ordered on amazon or b and h to arrive at my next spot and it was just one of those things where you're like <laughs> same thing you were saying like you just want to get out there and film and you're just like sitting there trying to be patient figure out how to work through the systems and understand everything correctly and you see the clock just ticking and you're like i gotta get out and, yeah. <laughs> and, and chase the sun so dude the logistics on that i can't imagine is next level just like your produ the producer mm -hmm. who's producing that i do not envy at all <laughs> yeah. awards awards for that, they, that, that they were absolutely incredible like mm. probably the best production team in the world um you know txl films their entire production staff is bar none at international shoots in general, but particularly anytime it goes outside the United States, I don't know of any other production company in the world like TXL. You know, that's a testament to them. And particularly like Nathan Lorge, Melena Ferreira, Nick Lane, Nicole Pace, those 
for like did just unthinkable things to make that film work and I, uh, so many of the problems that probably existed never even came into my world or sphere of knowledge because they were just so far ahead of things mm. but it was a miracle to to pull off what we did and wow. that's that just comes down to a lot of experience filming in other countries and greasing those lines and staying well ahead of you know where you're shooting today to make sure that next week and a month down the road you don't have any problems yeah that's amazing dude well i got one more question for you on nomad and i'll jump off um because i could talk about that all day but what is one tangible piece of advice for other dps out there that you learned while working on a feature of that caliber i think it comes down to being willing to experience anything which i know i said that a little bit earlier but particularly being willing to experience anything with others that you're working with, being willing to experience anything with the situation that you're working in. I know early on in my career, I'd often kind of fight against things that weren't going my way. And I would try to like, you know, force my will into making something happen a certain way. And it was like, Oh, there's not enough budget for this light. I'm just going to strangle this thing until it, you know, happens my way. And, um, and that can work totally and and sometimes it's worth doing that but for the most part i think if you're willing to like just apply a bit of like physical universe judo and like you know be willing to just sort of shift things in your way and kind of shift yourself so that you're going with the flow on stuff for one thing it makes you a lot more fun to work with and more tolerable to those that you work around but just being aware of the fact that you're working with a team of people and everyone's kind of united in this common purpose. And though your area is very important, taking into consideration everyone's area, if everybody's sort of willing to experience one another and willing to grant importance to every person's area and duties, life is suddenly a lot easier. And sometimes that means Mm. making sacrifices for the greater good of the entire project, as opposed to just your area. I think that's what creates those long-term relationships that work really well because it's not just about what is your role on this thing it's about what is the entire purpose of the project and what we're doing and how do we best bring up every department and help every department so that we get the best overall product dude that is so good i feel like one of the things that i have really been working on in myself as a dp is some of those like not even so much the technical ability, but it's how you lead, you know, the team while you're on set and provide that atmosphere and experience for the client and the project as a whole that, you know, really gives life to why we are all doing this in the first place, you know, to like make fun art and stuff that's fulfilling. And even when, you know, you don't have all the paint brushes that you would like, you know, you still go and you paint regardless. And so I love that um, that advice to, to other people out there, man. That's awesome. You brought up uh, a project that I would be remiss if I didn't bring, uh, back up, but you did, uh, an infamous commercial with the Kindle and Kylie Jenner. That's gotta be insane, dude. Talk to me about like one, how you got the project. What was the atmosphere like in the room? Like that's, uh, and we'll, we'll get into the look of the project look of it afterwards but talk to me about like how that even came about um and what it was like to shoot it yeah absolutely it is uh it's such a funny story it it started out with uh 
just a conversation with the director, Sophia Banks, an incredible director from Australia. She's brilliant. And uh, she had called me up because she was working with their creative director, I believe. And they were coming out with this new clothing line, uh, Kendall and Kylie is the name of the clothing line. And they, I think, were doing their first collection. And she was like, look, there's this, you know, stills shoot that they're doing. And they want to kind of do some stuff at this cool house in Hollywood. And uh, they're talking about doing like some behind the scenes video and stuff. Would you be like down to, to do something like that? I was like, totally. Why, yeah, why not? You know, let, let's do <laughs> yeah. it. And, you know, if they, I'm like, I don't totally understand how it's running. They got a director attached and, but uh, I'm game. Let's, let's do it. I'm not doing anything else. You know, I don't know rates. I don't know camera, nothing. It was just like, let's just see what happens. But yes. Um, and so a few days later, she's like, well, we're going to go scout this location. We're going to go check it out with the creative director and the photographer and all that. We go there and it's this incredible house, the name of which escapes me, but it's where they film that scene in the Big Lebowski where he gets the white Russian. It's that house. And um, we were, we go in there, the gate opens up. It's this like, you know, art deco steel contraption going in. There's like multiple houses and uh, very Frank Lloyd Wright aspects to it. And it was just like it, wild, wild space. Um, and we're going in and looking at all this stuff with the creative director and the photographer, and they're all very cool. And Sophia's in there talking about all the different spaces and some cool lighting stuff. And I'm sitting there going, like, I think we could, like, shoot, like, a proper commercial here. And so I just was, like, pushing for that the whole time. I was like, you know, why don't we just, like, try to shoot some stuff as well for, like, maybe a commercial that could happen, you know, at the same time. And uh, it doesn't need to just be stills. Like, we've got some great camera equipment which wasn't entirely true. Didn't have anything set up. Didn't even own a camera at the time. It was just renting stuff. Um, I think I had a red before that and sold it or something like that. Um, and they were like, okay, yeah, cool. That'd be a cool idea. And I was like, great, cool. So we're like going in and just start immediately planning out this commercial that no one's accounted for. And, uh, just started kind of like creating the commercial. It's like, this doesn't affect your budget really on anything. Everything should kind of fit within there. I think, I don't even know what the budgets are. I'm just saying stuff at this point. Start calling crew. And we're like putting things together. I'm like, look, I don't know what your grip truck is, but like, if you could bring it, you know, we'll find something for it and try to get a lighting package. We're like scrapping together this like commercial that doesn't exist and figuring things out. And I was like, I just, worst case scenario, I'm going to show up and they're going to tell me to leave. Um, and we show up with like, a three-ton grip truck, three-ton electric truck, a set of signature primes, a full-size LF. I called up my friend Quaid, who's a steady cam operator. I was like, I don't know what it pays. I'll figure it out. Or I'm going to owe you one really big. Like, let's just do it. And he's like, okay. I, you know, it was like totally just nobody uh, unsanctioned from the get-go. And Sophia was super cool because she's, she's a bit of a, a cowboy herself. And it was like, let's just see what happens. Like, you know, the worst they can say is no. And like, but I think if we just start doing it, they're going to love it. And they totally went for it. Like they, the girls arrived, created back to there. I was like, wow, this is a way bigger setup than I was thinking. Like, is this for us? Or like, what is this for? I was like, yeah, this is like the commercial that we're shooting and we're going to do some photos too. And like totally switch the things around. And <laughs> it became this very like video centric thing. And at the time that even the full size LF was super new. And we just ended up shooting this like incredible commercial spot that had all their different, you know, they did like 10 different outfit changes. We had like 15 different locations that we were filming the girls in. And they'd be like, 
just cycling through all of them. Super, super high energy on set. Um, and I know like Kylie had just had her baby and like both the girls were incredible to work with, like super tolerant of like a very, very hectic shoot day and including like having a baby to take care of in between takes and like was just super mm. willing to continue working at like a fr- frenetic play, uh, frenetic pace. And uh, yeah, so we just shot all these different crazy things and Quaid's doing stuff with the LF, which is like, that whole rig was like 80 pounds and he shot all day, 12 hours, just constantly uh, and made it look really easy. And at the end, when we started editing it, uh, Ed Coma and Spencer Jones were the editors on that. Um, and Ed works with Abandoned Visuals. Uh, they did these incredible edits for uh, in-store ads that they were doing. You know, they were like, well, we could send them out to Nordstrom's and all these places and we can have you know, these cool ads that showcase the clothing in store. And then as we started getting closer, they were like, Hey, look, we're thinking of actually doing an ad buy in Times Square and like putting this on the side of a building for a few weeks. And so we did this special version of it that was like full resolution, um, specifically for this crazy seven story, seven story tall screen in Times Square. And it ran on there for several weeks. So Wow. people sending videos from, from Times Square and got to go through that. Like, how do you prep a file for a huge screen in Times Square? Um, so it was really cool. It was a really, really cool experience. And for me, it was sort of the first time I touched on actually using large format. I kind of fell in love with it on that shoot. And uh, it was one of the first projects I did with my colorist, Ty Roth, who also later did Nomad and a bunch of other projects with me. Dude, the, the lighting on that project specifically like it really stood out to me uh like crazy crazy soft highlight roll off on on it and it was like i was like dang this is sick what did you do or like do you have um yeah like talk to me about like how you lit some of it and like really just like a mini masterclass on like (laughs) getting light that soft is it just book lighting you know crazy powerful lights or like what is the cheat code to that look bro i i will say that part of that is is having a great colorist so ty did me some favors and some solids on on contrast and roll off and, and he's very good at taking that if it's there yeah like if you light it properly you can definitely light something very well and then get into color and destroy what right. you've done. Um, but he did a really, really great job of accentuating that. And it was primarily, like you're saying, there's a lot of book lighting, but also we got lucky with like an uncharacteristically overcast day in mm. Los Angeles at the time. I was going to say, because like you were exposing outside. to windows too, which like makes it that much yeah. harder to get softer light. Yeah. It totally does. And, and that was... Like we were very, very lucky to have that weather oddity, you know, which at at first I was like very upset about. I was like, no, where's the sun? And then we like pulled out the camera and started lighting stuff. I was like, no, this is actually amazing. Mm -hmm. This totally works. Uh, So we did that and then we do a lot of just soft lighting inside. So it'd be like, you know, S60 panels with chimeras and diffusion into like 12 by full grid as close to them as possible. Um, and then just keeping it off the background so that they really popped against the environments that they were in. But it wasn't anything crazy complicated. It would just be like that with, you know, sometimes an egg crate on the front so that it didn't spill yeah. onto everything. And then we would just kind of shift that around into different rooms 
you know, other times it was just like literally putting up diffusion over the windows because they have these huge windows and there would be sun coming through smoke, then yeah. hitting mm. that. And it was like, great. It's not much more to do in here than this. Yeah. Mm. I love it, bro. Looks amazing. If anyone listening has not seen it, it is definitely worth the time to watch it because it is very well done. Uh, so shout out to you on that. Do you feel like, um, you know, when an opportunity like that comes your way, it's almost like a pivot moment in your career where it's like now you have this like body of work that you can showcase that almost gives you validity as an artist? Definitely. I think so. It it didn't feel like it at the time, actually. I think because I was maybe just so freaked out about shooting it in the first place. I was just like, I just need to, I just need to figure out how to not totally mess this up. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, you know, so you're just sitting there like, okay, how do I like emotionally get through this? And, you know, you're sitting there like on set, you're like, okay, great. Yeah. Like put the, let's put the 12 by over there. And, you know, if I can get like the led fresnel kind of as a kicker and we'll, you know, sort of put the, you know, uh, some negative fill on this side and let's shoot this on a 35. And like in between every sentence, they're just thinking like, I'm a total fraud. I don't even know what I'm saying. That. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. You know, and just like all of the meanest things you could possibly say to yourself um, every moment of the day. And then everyone's doing it. And they're like, oh, this is looking great. And you're like, great. I'm fooling everybody. This yeah. is awesome. Uh, <laughs> you know, but then you get through that and you start to like get into the day and you're shooting and you're going, okay, this actually is looking pretty good. And, you know, they seem to be into it and the creative director's happy and the director's happy. And everybody, you kind of see everyone's indicators are good and, you don't like have to beat yourself up quite as hard. And then you start getting into the editing, like, it was actually really good. And then you get in the color session and you're like, Oh, this is amazing. <laughs> you know? And then the first time seeing it on the screen in times square was when I was like, this is probably a big deal actually. Like this mm. is much bigger than I thought. You know, people are like starting to send you videos that like you haven't talked to in years, but they're in New York and they're like texting like, didn't you shoot this? And it's like, yeah, I did. <laughs> Thanks. Like, <laughs> How's, how are your parents? Like it's been yeah. five years. Um, that's when I was like, okay, this is a, this is actually a big deal. And that project has like held water as like a, a major piece in my portfolio for a number of years. And I, I still love it. I think it's, it's really cool. I go over a lot of that with people. I still break that shoot down quite a bit. Um, cause I think it's just a really good example of all the things. And it, there wasn't actually like a crazy budget for it. Yeah. You know, it was kind of just like, still calling in a lot of favors with friends and like sort of finessing it into a commercial when it wasn't really even a commercial to start with. And then it became a commercial. And, you know, I, I've always loved those kinds of stories because that sort of takes me back to where I started and all of it was just like, just say yes and then figure it out and deliver an amazing product and people will be happy. Like you can finesse anything and you can absolutely like play in the gray area. So long as you're doing it to the benefit of everyone no one's going to be mad. Like if you're trying to finesse somebody into like delivering more value to them, like who's going to argue with that at the end of the day? You're like, I'm going to trick you into loving this even more. Mm. And um, I think that that's just really important is to always like maintain a high level of exchange with people whenever possible. And I think that that was something that they just weren't expecting to have, but they ended up being very happy to have. And that's why it went out as broadly as it did. Um, and I, I hope if, if nothing else that people take away, just like, just say yes, figure it out. And, um, you know, the, the worst thing that can happen is you shoot something for free or, and, and you're like, oh, that was awful. And they were really mean to me about it. And you're like, cool. Well, then you learned something, mm -hmm. you know, for sure you learned something and, you know, people are willing to spend 
dollars to go work for free for many years in film school, but then they're presented with like an incredible opportunity and they get caught on like, oh, I should really charge for this. Where it's like, just go do the work, just mm. go shoot the thing, you know. And eventually, people start to exchange with you back because you're delivering so much. Like, and if they don't, fine. Then you adjust the people that are around you over time, and you find your people. But that's no reason not to go shoot amazing things and build up a portfolio over time. Dude, that is such like solid sound advice. And I've never even thought about it, but you do. You take like four or five years, like for the people that go to film school and they literally go like, I'm going to go pay, you know, to work uh, like really, really hard for like five years of my <laughs> life. And then they wrap that stage of their career and they're like, I have to get paid for everything that I do, even if it, you After know. After paying 40 or 50,000 for, <laughs> dude, that, that's all. I never thought of it that dude, way. Dude, yeah, too. No, that's, that's so, so good. That's true. That's true. Uh, talk to me. Uh, I, I, I want to be respectful of time. I got two more questions and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this thing up. But uh, Genius World Campaign, bro, what is that? What is, uh, you know, you've been working on this project for a long time as well. Uh, talk to me about that and kind of some of the things that you've learned through through that process as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's the most recent commercial project that TXL Films has been working on, in which I've been fortunate enough to DP. And it, it all centers around uh, this research that a uh, psychologist did in the 70s, I believe, uh, Dr. Alfred Barrios, and to sort of the common traits that different geniuses possessed. And there are 24 different traits that he discovered in many different geniuses and he sort of categorized things like patience, uh, knowledge, willingness to take chances, uh, many, many different traits. And what we've done is go around the world and film people who have these different traits in their specific vocations. So like recently I was, was very close to you guys in Dallas filming with an aerobatic pilot who is absolutely incredible. And uh, she was an example of versatility and she can fly over, I think 110 different, types of aircraft wow and so she's a, a commercial pilot so she flies for an airline uh, she's also an unbelievable aerobatic pilot so like we went up we we're doing flips in aerobatic planes um which was wild pulling some like serious g's we were rigging komodos into the planes uh to get kind of like top gun style shots where mm. you know inside the cockpit as we're doing flips and like flying through smoke and just really really wild stuff that you don't get to see very often and that was for versatility, but we've done two rounds of these now. So there's 48 spots in total. Each of them is 60 seconds. And then there's some short form videos that go with those. So I think in total the 48, 60 second public service announcements, and then the accompanying uh, trait kind of short form stories for each of those individuals and in their different areas that they represent, their different traits that they represent. But the entire purpose of the campaign is to educate the entire world on something that is very important, I think, which is that a lot of people think that genius is this concept which exists in other people and that there are only a few select geniuses that exist. And the interesting thing about genius is if you break down the etymology of the word and where it comes back to, it means something which is innate in everyone, mm. something which they are born with, right? So there is genius in everybody within these traits. It's that people have to find that and develop those traits over time. So mm. Knowledge, for example, is something that you gain over time by studying, right? And, and actually going in and, and putting in the time to learn new things and to not be afraid of doing that. And versatility comes from actually going in and learning many different crafts. And, you know, in the film industry, it's like, that's important. You know, knowing not just 
your hat, but everyone's hat so that you can either help out or be respectful of it or work them into the entire workflow of the film and, and being aware of all these things. Best filmmakers I know are incredibly versatile. So the entire campaign has been a, obviously a blast. We get to like go around to these incredible places and film these incredible people with these stories. But for me, it's really been interesting to learn about all of the different traits. And there's certain things that you're like, oh, I can really work on that, you know, like hmm. patience. Hmm. Um, you know, we work with some of the incredibly patient people uh, you know, who do like book carvings that over, you know, hundreds of hours or uh, chocolatiers that are doing like these incredibly intricate chocolate sculptures that like take hundreds and hundreds of hours. And I'm like, you know, okay, patience. That's, that's like my one that I got to like work on, you know, and, but there's these interesting things with each trait that I think people will learn throughout the process. So it's like patience. It's like be patient with others, but be patient with yourself. Mm. I think that's very cool. Like, cool. Don't be patient with yourself like keep pushing yourself very hard but in the process being patient with other people that's something that i can practice on set you know mm. so it's been a really really amazing project i think that'll be releasing this year and people will be able to see that at uh, a geniusworld.com and, and then i think on instagram it's genius world inc um they're starting to drop teasers and stuff but that's been an incredibly fun one we've been running around the world uh again <laughs> with too many LFs and signature primes and a couple of Komodos and a bunch of drones. And, uh, you know, we, we travel with like 28 massive Pelican cases with 70 pounds of gear in each of them. So it's a lot. That's sick. <laughs> you, you must have like stacks and stacks of frequent flyer miles and points. To, I mean, are you like, yes, you could probably fly around the world like six times just on points alone. Yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I think, uh, I'm still trying to hit that like million miler thing with with Delta. That, yeah. That's when I'll feel like I've I've made it. But that's awesome. I, I'm probably only halfway there at this point. Do you ever shoot projects that you are not the coolest projects on the planet? Like, and do you like all of the stuff that you shoot is like so insanely fun sounding? Oh, like, oh, I yeah. just was in Dallas and uh, did some uh, airplane flips and and whatnot. Like, I yeah. know. I hope you do some corporate project that you hate. Yeah, now. I totally all all the time. Now, I, I I hate to like say no, but I mostly when it's I, it's kind of cheating because. TXL Films is like a production company is definitely like the knee plus ultra of people to work with. Like I've been very lucky to have been on set with them for the better part of 10 or 11 years. And every project is, so it's like the best people working on the coolest sets with the coolest people for the coolest reasons. You know, it's mm. like, like genius. We're going around and filming with like people in jetpacks and we're like jumping off of cliffs with uh, wingsuit divers and like, you know, up in Iceland with Chris Burkhard, you know, trekking through ice caves and all of that for the purpose of just like a philanthropic endeavor to teach the world how they can find their own genius. Like that's the coolest thing ever. Yeah, like, it, it is. It just bro. doesn't get better than that job. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. You're not selling anything. It's to educate, inspire. That's man. That's fast. So Joey awesome. and I are over here just green with envy. We're like, this is so like, cool. Dude. And, and Kevin, <laughs> I feel like we need like 
five more uh, episodes I with know, you, bro. bro. You have so much knowledge and fun stories, dude. I feel like I barely even got to pick your brain, too, yet. I'm like, dang, man. Part but, two, maybe in the yeah, future. Part we, two in we'll the see future, if we can bro. get you back yeah. on for part two, yeah. Um, yeah, dude. I'll have to fly out there for it. Yes, yeah, 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 it's free for you, so I won't feel bad asking for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man. Um, dude, one last question, and then we'll button this thing up, bro. Yeah. But for other people, other DPs who are climbing the ladder and coming before you, man, what is one piece of advice that you can leave to help other DPs elevate uh, and and take their career to the next level, man? I would say study like it's a full time job. Like just continue to stay on your craft and study like you're in film school, whether you are or not, but study for yourself, study the things that you're interested in and do that passionately and don't stop ever. Um, you know, continuously learning is the most important thing. Um, it's what's kept me sane over the years is just staying fresh on whether it's lighting camera lenses, but part of studying is going out and applying it. So study something and then go do it. Mm. So a lot of people, they just do the theory, but then go out and do the practical so that you're always expanding and say yes to things that scare you, Yeah, mm. you know, mm. and the more it scares you generally, the better. And I've always found that when you're freaked out at the beginning of the project, that's because you're about to do something that pushes what you are capable of. And if you're feeling very comfortable, it's probably time to push yourself onto the next thing that you're freaked out about. Hmm. Dude, so solid. Uh, so solid. Yes, that was an amazing way to button button all this up, dude. Um, well, man, I uh, we got five questions that we like to ask each of our okay. guests. We can make them we can make them quick. Uh, but we'll run through this and sure. we'll wrap this thing up. But if you could go back in your career and do it all differently, what is one thing that you would change? I would have started shooting on Aries sooner. Mm. <laughs> okay, so why why Aerie? Because I'm in the red ecosystem. Uh, no, I I yeah. don't actually. I and the Aerie guys will say it too. Like it, you can shoot on any camera, yeah. and, and it's not about the camera. But I will know. I, I noticed that I had a moment in my career where I stopped thinking about cameras when I switched to Aerie, and that mm. was a cool thing for me. Like I stopped mm. focusing on the camera as the thing. And it just became a tool that worked for me. And as soon as I kind of abstracted that away, my life got a lot easier and I could just focus on the story. And I really loved that because I think for me, having a red, it was very flashy. I was very into the technical. I like black shading my camera like every day in the morning. And like, I just got like really into it, which is cool. And I know that there's guys that love that and that's totally fine. Um, but that's something I would have changed about my yeah. career earlier on probably i love it dude that's really insightful man uh what excites you the most about the current film industry or market the thing that excites me the most is seeing things changing so rapidly in terms of like the technical bar and how accessible it is so like my buddy oren who just recently shot the creator yep. alongside greg frazier and mm. doing that with the fx3 which i know he like doesn't care what the camera is and that's not the whole point of the whole thing and i know he's probably uh tired of hearing about that but <laughs> it's incredible to see what they achieved with that and i think that that is a testament to how quickly technology is advancing mm. and to me that's incredibly exciting because we're seeing a um, democratization of technology for artists where mm. everybody can start to get access to tools 
to make meaningful art. And the more we allow access to those tools to people, the more interesting films are going to be in the future. It's awesome, man. Yeah. I love that. Um, what is one piece of advice that you can give to filmmakers trying to grow in their craft or their business? Communicate more um, with everybody. So the, the truth of the matter is that like work and money and all of these things that flows across communication between people. And if you don't put your work out there like a psychopath constantly, no one will ever hear about you and people can't hire you unless they hear about you. So if you want to expand, the formula is really simple. The more that you flow outward with communication to people and the more that you do that in an understanding and legitimate way with other people authentically, the more attention you will receive and the more work you will book as a result. Pretty simple. A lot of people don't apply that, but if you do, magic happens. That's awesome, man. Dude, soundbite after soundbite. I'm loving it. Uh, where are we as an industry headed in filmmaking or should be focusing on? I think that we are heading more towards a renaissance of realism in general. Mm. I think with the advent of AI and oversaturation of CGI and desensitivity to grandiose green screen and stuff, there is a bit of a renaissance of realism occurring um, where people appreciate things which are real, again, even more. And it's more and more of a precious commodity. And I think that films which contain realism and which kind of celebrate realism while telling incredible stories are going to become something that are more and more celebrated in the future. That's awesome, man. I love that. I think you're right too. I, I, we've talked about it before, but you know, especially with like the superhero wave that happened where every superhero yeah. movie was happening. It was like, everybody wanted the opposite of that. And like, we are, especially yeah. with like the TV series moving more into an era where it's like, we want those real authentic connectability you know, like the connection in the stories. And so I dig that, man. hundred um, percent. Last question for you. Who is one filmmaker that you admire and why? Probably Karen Lexton, the director that I work with, you know, I admire all the big guys a lot. I, I love Christopher Nolan, uh, Hoyt Ben Hoytena's DP, Roger Deakins. Those guys are incredible, but as an overall filmmaker, I think Teron is one of the people that inspires me the most because mm. of what he's built over time mm. and how I've kind of witnessed him grow over time over the last 10 or 11 years and the people that he surrounds himself with and how happy everyone is on his film sets and the stories that he's crafting. I mean, early on with In Search of Fellini as a film, the first film we did up through Nomad. And now with some of the next projects that he's got coming up, I'm just very excited to see where he goes as a filmmaker. And I can see him uh, turning into this incredible visionary that's more broadly known now, which is really exciting for me. Uh, but I'm just excited for the rest of the world to see it as well. And I think that he's gone about it in a way that's very inspiring, that he's brought other people with him and has created a, an environment where everyone around him succeeds as well. And I think that's just really cool. And I, I look up to that a lot. Man, this, epi this episode has been inspiring for uh, a multitude of reasons. I'm going to leave here today feeling energized and charged up, bro. It has been a joy to chat with you for an hour here and uh, pick your brain. Super excited about the release of Nomad, mm. the genius campaign that you're doing that's about to drop. 
a lot of really, really exciting stuff on the horizon for you. And we appreciate you taking the time to join us in the studio today, man. Absolutely. Pleasure is mine. Thank you guys so much. Absolutely, man. This has been a great episode of the Rough Cut Club. And we'll, oh, before we wrap out of here, where can people get connected with you if they want to get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, probably, honestly, the easiest place is just uh, on Instagram, Kevin Garrison. Awesome, man. Well, thank you again for joining us today. As I was saying, this has been an incredible episode of the Rough Cut Club, and we'll see you guys next time. 